0: You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this podcast of the BJSM. My name is Babette Pluim and I'm deputy editor of the BJSM. I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Anne Coles, physiotherapist, who is a true shoulder specialist. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Babette. Anne, you work at the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences and Physiotherapy at the Ghent University, and you also did a phd thesis there which i was um, which was my pleasure to attend to it was on analysis of scapular thoracic muscle recruitment in overhead athletes could you tell us a little bit more about your work
1: yes indeed the main topic of this phd was scapular involvement in shoulder pain in the overhead athletes and uh, we particularly looked at muscle recruitment changes in overhead athletes with impingement symptoms and the main outcome of that thesis was that there were some strength deficits and muscle imbalances and timing problems in overhead athletes with impingement symptoms in their scapular muscles in particularly uh, according to my studies in the trapezius muscle so that's uh, I finished my PhD in 2003 and after that in my postdoctoral research I really looked at rehabilitation possibilities for these muscle recruitment problems. So I looked for the appropriate exercises to change muscle balance and to restore normal timing in these muscle groups.
0: Yeah, and I think I think you published several articles in that area in the in the BGSM. In fact I know for sure you did because they're they're very, very popular. And can you tell us a little bit more about those articles?
1: Well, indeed, besides the more scientific papers, I was very happy to be able to publish some more clinical papers in BGSM, um, amongst others on the clinical examination, the screening of shoulder pain in overhead athletes, but also on the treatment strategy of internal impingement in the overhead athlete. And that's some of the things that we really see a lot in, in clinical practice in daily life on our athletes, to have a quick screening of their problems and then to find out how to uh, find the appropriate exercises to treat them. So I was also very happy to collaborate on, on the special issue in 2010 with Todd Ellenbecker in which we could really focus on rotator cuff and scapular rehab and I'm very happy that it's popular among the <laughs> readers. Yes,
0: yes and also the, the algorithm, do you use the algorithm yourself to, to screen athletes for impingement?
1: Yes, of course. I use it. I use it every day uh, because it gives me structure in the clinical examination of the athlete. And I, I'm very pleased that uh, mainly all over Europe, I some sometimes see the algorithm in the practice of of physiotherapists and the clinics that that seem to have found some structure into the clinical examination because there are so many tests in um, in the shoulder exam that we need some some structure to to guide us in that. So I'm very pleased about it.
0: Yeah. And from impingement, I think you, you've also went over to the to the Scapular. And on behalf of the BGSM, you will visit the Scapular Summit coming July, which is organized by Dr. Ben Kipler of the Lexington Clinic in, in Kentucky. And um, this is the third summit, and you've visited all three. Can you tell us a little bit about the aim of these summits and why they are so important to you?
1: I'm very pleased that since 2003, uh, Ben Kibler organizes this cupulous uh, summit every uh, three years and the main goal is that we get some consensus on some issues such as clinical exam and terminology and finally um, this summer the main title is the clinical implications of scapular dyskinesia and the goal is that we look at scapular problems in specific sports but also that we look at some specific rehab protocols and uh, since last time The final results of this summit are summarized in some kind of consensus paper and we hope to publish the results of this capitalist summit.
0: And is that going to to happen
1: at this summit, the consensus meeting? Yes, normally we have some um, discussions, group discussions, and then Mm -hmm. from the group discussions some of us really try to write down the results and to have some um, dissemination of the results of this closed summit meeting. To the general public, who is uh, interested in shoulder and scapular dyskinesia in particular, so and we hope that this time BGSM will be uh, able to publish our results.
0: Yes, yes, yes. We're, it's one of the priority areas of the BGSM, the shoulder, because it's well, it's difficult, it's challenging, and then, but it's, a lot of research is happening in that area. And in that area, I want to ask you another question because we, we now use eccentric st- uh, training well as a cornerstone in the treatment of achilles and patellar tendinopathy and do you see a role for eccentric training in the treatment of shoulder injuries as well
1: well indeed in the treatment of the lower limb eccentric training is very popular although it's also discussed and in the shoulder area it's not well known yet but uh, we are finalizing a project at this stage a phd that will be defended in the month of june in which we really looked at the value of eccentric training in rotator cuff tendinopathy. And what we did was the first big um, randomized control trial, um, looking at the additional value of eccentric training. Now, the main result of this study is that probably eccentric training has a great value in making the rotator cuff stronger, but not in reducing the symptoms. So both our patient groups, the traditional group, and the eccentric training group got better, but uh, the experimental group got also stronger. So in view of getting our athletes stronger for performance, that might be the uh, additional value of, of eccentric training. And we hope to publish these results uh, in the very near future.
0: Well, please keep me in the loop because uh, my my players, they always struggle with shoulder injuries. So I would be very interested to uh, to read more about that. And the other thing that you focus on which I also find fascinating is the the scapular dyskinesia it's something well professor Ben Kibler has focused on you have focused on and you you told me that you yeah that you were doing some research in that area and I'm not going to steal the word for you so could you please tell us a little bit more about that as well
1: Well the thing is that at this stage we don't know really which is the cause or the consequence of scapular dyskinesia in relation to shoulder pain uh, until now we only see scapular dyskinesia in patients with shoulder pain but we don't know whether the shoulder pain induced the scapular dyskinesia whether the other way around so one of our more recent um, projects is really looking into the association between scapular dyskinesia and pain and we are going we are performing at this stage Um, a pain induction study to see whether uh, experimentally induced pain can change the scapular dyskinesia. So we induce pain in normal people and see what the effect is on the EMG activity and the 3D scapular kinematics. But it's too soon now to have the results ongoing. The only thing we do know is that at at the first stage, the patients report uh, the pain, and they also report some more difficulty to, 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 to do proper movements. But it's too soon to have some results on that. It's, it
0: sounds a little bit scary. Can you explain that? You induce pain in patients?
1: Yes, yes. We, have, uh, we somehow induce pain by an injection. It's a method that is it's commonly used. particularly in our department where we do some pain induction studies on the lumbar spine and the cervical spine and now we use the same methods to induce pain in the supraspinatus and then see what happens at scapular level and i was i was happy to be the first victim so i felt (laughs) the pain in the supraspinatus it's uh controlled by ultrasound into the muscle, very standardized, and then we see what happens to the scapular uh, movements and the and the muscle activity. So okay, it's it's rather experimental, but I hope that it gets somehow a little bit an answer to the question of the chicken and the egg.
0: Okay, well, very, very interesting. I'd love to read about that, too. And, and the other thing I noticed, is, or what you told me actually, is that you, you traveled all the way from Belgium to Sweden on many occasions to do a collaborative research with the Swedish Tennis Federation on age-related change in the shoulder of Swedish tennis players. It's a long way to travel. Um, why did you go there, and what is the aim of this study?
1: Well, indeed, a few years ago, I had uh, the opportunity to do some testing on elite adolescent tennis players. Thanks to some good contacts with the Swedish Tennis Federation and the people working for the Swedish Tennis Federation. And I published already a paper in BGSM regarding some scapular adaptations in elite tennis players on that age. And in the meantime, this, um, this study just went on and we are going to have a PhD project now in Sweden where we focus on shoulder and Capular adaptation in elite tennis players, but also at the physical testing and the capacity of the players over time. And uh, the main reason why we do it in Sweden is because of the the collaboration that I I am able to, to perform at this stage. And uh, I'm very it's a very challenging project because it's not always easy to have a, a large number of elite players to do some research on it's important to see how elite players perform to be able to match them with injured players but also with recreational players.
0: And and is your research the reason that the Swedish tennis players are so good and should we actually try to get you to Holland?
1: I can come to Holland too. I think that the most important thing is the level of the player. You can very much see adaptations and see some positive but also negative risk factors in elite players which you will never see in recreational players so an elite level of the sport is very important to do research on to say some to give some advice to recreational players for the general level so i think that whether it's tennis or not or it's handball or it's uh it's another overhead sport the elite level is very important to do research on
0: Yes, and uh, in that area, I'm, I'm glad to say that you actually have traveled to the Netherlands as well and that you are doing some research on Dutch uh, handball players at the National Sports Centre in Papenau. Uh What is the aim of, of those studies? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about your results in this area?
1: Well, indeed, last year we went to the Netherlands to do some testing on the elite female handball players. Uh, the main goal was to see whether um, there were some adaptations on the level of the scapular movement, so 3D analy- analysis. We also did some ultrasound measurements of the superchromial space, and we also did some clinical measurements such as range of motion and strength. And then we uh, looked at the immediate effect of scapular taping on these variables. Now, mainly we see regarding the superchromial space that the female handball players have an advantage compared to recreational players regarding the, the the superchromial space. It's larger on their dominant side than the non-dominant side. So that's a very promising result, maybe protecting them from injury. Now, regarding the effect of scapular taping, we saw that uh, the immediate effect on the scapular Kinematics is that you have an improvement of scapular position immediately after application of the tape into more uh, protective positions. So these were the main results of that study. But we hope we hope to go on with some more studies on the same population in the future.
0: But these are really the, the, the first one, especially that's an unexpected finding, isn't it? That this suprachromial space is is wider on the dominant side.
1: Yes, Do you indeed. Think that-
0: Yes. Yeah, that's, that's
1: true. Contrary to some other studies showing more risk for injury, we found that they have less risk. So that's always the, the, the main thing in, in scientific research is that you have to deal with and discuss uh, your own results. And in this case, for the handball players, they seem to be in favor of their shoulder. And on the contrary, some other results on tennis players show that they had less superchromial space. So we don't know what the reason is and we don't know what the cause is. Maybe maybe it's the the specifics of the sports or maybe it's the training um, strategy. We don't have any information on that, but it was an interesting result.
0: Yes, and that would be be really interesting to look at that longitudinally as well.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, It would be excellent to look at that over time, whether it changes, because in the Swedish tennis players between 12 and 20 years old, we saw some changes that were not in favour of uh, injury prevention. We see some decrease in range of motion in the shoulder, some changes in the muscle balance at the rotator cuff. So, but it's not the same study design, so we cannot compare it very well.
0: Mm-hmm. And could you
1: sum it up? What, what
0: what do you think the the main the main pathological finding in the Swedish tennis players is? If you would mention two or three areas, what what do you think the main the most important ones?
1: Well, from, from a functional point of view, we know that they have a decrease in range of motion into an internal rotation, so they have the so called GERD phenomenon already mm-hmm. at a young uh, stage. From the scapular point of view, we see that they have strong primary movers, but there is some, some kind of uh, not increasing strength in the stabilizers, which might uh, increase the risk for muscle imbalance. And at the rotator cuff level, we see that the ratio decreases. So from the ratio that would be normal, which is 65 to 70%, uh, it decreases a little bit more um, and goes to the level of a lot of adult players. So these are functional problems that might increase the risk for injury. On the other hand, we don't know yet, but we are working on that, if they have structural damage, because at the meantime, all these players have uh, have got an MRI on their shoulder, and we are now analysing the results to see whether they have some structural damage already at that stage, and also to look at the muscle volume of the rotator cuff. But this this study is ongoing, so we don't have any results yet on that.
0: Well, you're you're a, a very busy person, and, and a truly an expert in that area and I I assume that's also why you are president of the European Society for Shoulder and Elbow Rehabilitation. What are your goals with this society, and what are the studies you are involved with?
1: Well, indeed, in uh, 2008, we started this USER, European Society of Shoulder and Elbow Rehabilitation, and at present, I am the president of this organization. society. Our main goal is to improve communication amongst uh, therapists that are interested in shoulder rehabilitation but also with the surgeons and the physicians because that's where collaboration starts in view of the the best treatment for our patients. Now we also have a scientific committee and in the scientific committee our goal is to start up some multi-center studies all over Europe and also to have some discussions and uh, group meetings regarding some topics. And our first goal is uh, to somehow have a statement or a consensus paper on the treatment of subacromial impingement and rotator cuff. So we will have a meeting somewhere in the fall of this year in Sweden with some people from Sweden, Belgium, uh, Italy, and the UK to see whether we can some find out some consensus on that. So it's very challenging to be um, president of a society that is trying to get partners all over Europe uh, on all levels.
0: Yes, and, well, and I can see you're putting a lot of time and energy into it. Well, thank you very much, Anne, for your time. Is there anything else you would like to discuss?
1: I'm very pleased that BGSM gives the opportunity to researchers to give a communication such like this podcast to really talk about what we are doing because very often the, in, in this level of research the distances are very big distances among researchers because we live all over all over the world but also to the readers so i think this is a very nice personal way to get our statements into uh, into the journal and in, and to the people who Who we want to read the journal. So I'm very happy that you invited me to this podcast and I was very pleased and honored to be present here.
0: Well, thank you very much for the compliments and thank you very much for your time. And I'm sure the readers will love to listen to it.
1: Thank you very much, Babette.
0: For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit BMJ.com.